Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. In this third series, we're going slightly off the beaten track. These 10 conversations will take us on a journey from the world of psychedelics, ecological grief and the self, to technobiophilia, leadership and how we might begin to recreate our identity as a species in the face of the unfolding climate crisis. Join me each week as we explore these topics and more. And if you like the show, please do rate or review it as it helps to reach new ears. For additional resources and to find out more, visit natalinahai.com forward slash the hive podcast or tweet to me at natalinahai. I hope you enjoy the show. Today's guest is Chris Timmerman, who hails from Santiago, Chile, where he obtained a BSc in psychology and subsequently his neuroscience MSc in Bologna, Italy. He's currently completing a PhD in Imperial College London, leading a project focusing on the effects of DMT and the human brain and experience, while also understanding its potential use for mental health conditions. This is another really rich and exciting conversation for me and a nice note on which to end the third series. Before we begin, if you would like to know more about the podcast as a whole, or you want to find out when the new series is coming out, which will be towards spring, you can find out more at natalinahai.com forward slash the hive podcast. You can also follow me on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Just search for Natalie Nahai. And if you have any topics you would really like to hear more about or people you would like me to interview, just get in touch. Hope you enjoy the show. So Chris, thank you very much for joining me in conversation for this 10th episode of the third series. Very excited to be speaking with you. Oh, thank you, Natalie, for, uh, for having me in the show. And uh, yeah, looking forward to our conversation very much. So I'm going to ask you what I've been asking everyone else um, to address to open up the conversation. And that's the question of where do you think we're headed as a species? <laughs> Whoa. Um, <laughs> just, I like it. It's a very broad <laughs> Big question to begin. Yeah, I think um, if I could sum it up, I, I think we're we're headed towards a challenge, and and possibly towards change, or if you want to sound a bit more cryptic, transformation. I think um, as a species, uh, I think we're faced with two things, uh, two major things, which uh, potentially have like an incredible um, potential of threat for us, which mm-hmm. is the ecological um, crisis and the geopolitical crisis, uh, which includes, you know, like nuclear power and so on. So I think that these, these two things, uh, which, you know, are just creeping up everywhere and where um, for example, uh, the denialism of climate change has become so much of a fringe thing nowadays. It's just so evident and it's so palpable and concrete that I think as a species, we're entering this domain of challenge. Mm. Um, and it's no longer an abstract thought, an abstract idea. It's now become more and more an embodied thing. So we see the consequences of that a bit everywhere. And I think that that's that kind of like 
uh, existential impression of how things are are getting to be now that idea of change happening all around us mm. poses the question of challenge to us how do we deal with this change how do we negotiate uh, the aspects that needs to be negotiated for you know this idea of transformation to be the less painful as possible mm. uh, and you know who know who knows maybe in a crisis there is an opportunity as well so i think that that's that's that will be kind of like where I think we're headed into this very challenging realm. Hmm. It's interesting as you're speaking, I'm thinking of, um, it's reminded me of a, a podcast I was listening to, um, a fascinating author that I have the pleasure of interviewing here. Her name is Manda Scott, and she was talking about how um, it may be a trope, but it's true that the the mindset that gives rise to a difficult situation or a problem will not give rise to the solution to that problem. And so this sense of literally transforming or changing one's state and mind is something which has, has come up quite a few times in terms of creating an environment in which to address this with a different approach. I'm curious what your thoughts are about that, especially given your background working with um, entheogens and the effects of, for instance, DMT on brain function. I know that you conducted the first study to investigate the effects of DMT on brain function. So what are, the, what are some of the things that you've seen in this nascent research that maybe connect with how we might start to, to relate to the crisis in a different way? Well, I think there, uh, I think there are different angles into that, but I, I think the, um, the central aspect is, again, the idea of, of change. And, mm. and if you look at like the history of psychedelics, and if you look at the different domains in which psychedelics interact, which are very broad. So they interact in the social realm. Uh, you know, you can have examples in the counterculture. You can have examples in music and arts, etc. cetera. Uh, it interacts with biology, brain fun function. You can see uh, the transformations in that domain uh, and uh, the way that we relate to each other and the way that we relate to nature. And I think the the, one of the key things that we've been seeing popping up, at least from the neuroscience perspective on, on mm. what psychedelics do, is precisely this radical kind of like shifting gears, alteration, transformation, uh, idea of inducing disorder so that new order can emerge mm. at a certain oh, point. And I think that, yeah, precisely in that, in, in that sort of idea of change, I think that overflows in the way that we relate to each other and you know you have very interesting you know specific applications and of how that you know in the medicalization idea takes place which is the idea like couples therapy psychedelics for couples therapy right so the idea of transformation the transforming these relationships the idea that you know we transform our relationship with nature which i think is one of the most exciting um kind of like possibilities coming out of this whole psychedelic research thing happening in the last decades uh, is this very interesting, curious and unique finding that apparently we start resonating more with nature in these states. Mm. And we don't know why. <laughs> so that's hugely important. And then there's the idea of social transformation at large. And you have examples like the counterculture and so on. So I think that that would be, I think that that's, again, you know, the idea of change. Uh, uh, it's it's it appears to be particularly relevant the potential for psychedelics. It's easy also to fall in some sort of idealism to think mm. that 
um, you know, if we just do it, everything will be okay. Or this notion that if you give this to certain politicians with mm -hmm. bad ideas, then they would become more compassionate, so on. And I think that uh, as you get more and more uh, deep into trying to understand these effects, be that from the discipline that you are interested, whatever that may be, anthropology, psychology, science, etc., um, you start to find how complex it is and how how there's no one obvious direction in which things can take, safe for a few except exceptions. Um, and then, you know, as it becomes more complicated, you start seeing that there's a key element on how the substances are mediated by the context in which they happen. Mm. And uh, I think that that's also very, very interesting because the substance, like the idea of studying psychedelics, not only tells us something interesting about the possibilities of transformation, but it tells us how always this possibility of transformation needs to be scaffolded mm. in a particular environment, needs to be mediated by a particular group of people, uh, guide, for example, context, ceremony, setting, etc. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, th I think that's, that's kind of like the, the interesting, important, potentially important role that uh, psychedelics may have in this these times when you're talking about this power for transformation and the scaffolding to enable certain experiences in that space for transformation to happen so facilitating these sorts of experiences um what are some of the key elements that need to be present because you often hear about set and setting and dosage and of course these are important things but um given that a lot of people i certainly know a lot of people who now interested in these things go off and have ceremonies with people in dubious places that seem to be very inexperienced in terms of skillful compassionate facilitation mm. what would you advise that people need to look for the components for this scaffolding that they need to to make sure is there if they're thinking about exploring this this area this yeah yeah this experience well from a you know from a purely harm reduction perspective right because it's it's uh, it's difficult for my position to really command on things but I would say that there are two main aspects to the whole idea of mediation. And one has to do with safety, so the minimum conditions for the experience to be safe and that nobody gets harmed. And the second one has to do with uh, the specific objectives um, and what people are looking for when they do the experiences. And there are, you know, that can vary depending on the, on the specific aims or, or, or the the particular context or ambience that the, that the people engaging with it are. In terms of safety, you know, like we hear a lot of this idea of set and setting. And it's interesting because we've started to put a bit of science into that mm -hmm. uh, or at least some data, you know, just uh, so in our research, we, we perform uh, survey studies that are prospective. So we ask people before they go into a ceremony, a session, or so on, what are their intentions, for example? Or we ask them, you know, what context will it be? Will it be guided by someone or not? And, and it's uh, interesting because we fi figured out that the idea of set and setting, you can translate it into, into components, for example, intention. Hmm. Uh, and we found out that, you know, more benefits can be gained or the experience can be safer, less challenging if the intention is about connection more than escapism, for mm, example. That's fascinating. And here you have like a classic, yeah, like a classic difference as compared to other substances, which, you know, including alcohol or, or stimulants in which 
the idea of escapism is is pretty much the norm. Mm. Um, so you know the, the the old cliche that you know psychedelics are different. You know, like uh, while it is a bit too much of a binary sort of idea, because a lot of people take psychedelics in a purely fun, almost escapist sort of way. Mm. It's very rare, but it does happen and can happen. Uh, it is true that the the experience is very much on the fringe of confronting yourself with things that you don't necessarily want to be confronted with. And for you to have that experience, you need to be in an environment in which you can relax into that experience. And if you have a specific purpose for that confrontation to be uh, potentiated. Mm. And um, yeah, that, that's, I think that that's, those are, the, are kind of like the abstract uh, sort of ideas of, of how this, this whole thing can be mediated. Another important thing, I think, you know, considering that uh, maybe broad audience can be listening to this, is the importance of doing it with someone, someone who knows what, what they're doing. And it's tricky navigating this space, I guess, mm. especially nowadays with so much offer coming out and with so much demand, uh, the whole process of mainstreaming of psychedelic uh, use is, is really undergoing in a very, very strong fashion. So uh, it does become uh, tricky and challenging, but there are some good resources out there to try to understand, you know, what is uh, the idea of a good sitting session or, or a guide or a therapist. There are interesting resources by harm reductions group like Cosmicare, which have a manual on how to sit with people who are having mm. challenging experiences with psychedelics. Mm. So these organizations like Cosmicare, they are, uh, there's also other type of organizations all around Europe, but the main idea is that you go to a festival where people take a lot of uh, psychedelics and many of these people are going to have challenging experiences. So in that, uh, uh, the festivals offer the possibility of having somebody sitting with people having these challenging experiences. So, so they, there's a lot of know-how out there as well on how to deal and how to mediate these experiences. The issue is that the know-how uh, has usually undergone in, in the underground because mm. the drugs were illegal. Yeah. But there are very interesting uh, resources out there for mm. sure. Um, last year, I don't know if you came across this book. I mean, you're in this field. You probably conducted some of the preliminary research that was then cited. But um, there's a fascinating book, a mainstream book that came out by Michael Pollan called How to Change Your Mind. And it tracked very elegantly the the history of psychedelic use and especially its more recent research. So in the 60s mm. and 70s in the States and then um, the backlash and then now the, the resurgent... Um, interest again in scientific exploration of the use of an impact of psychedelics and I wonder with with all of this stuff coming out now from the conversations I've had with some practitioners there is a concern that as with other things like midwifery or um, nutrition or herbology you know these kind of these practices that hold indigenous traditional knowledge and when I say indigenous and traditional I mean local to the land in which this knowledge has arisen so I'm talking about all over the world here um, but there is a tendency for the scientific predominantly the scientific west to dismiss these other forms of knowing these other forms of knowledge gathering 
and try and institutionalize through the scientific method techniques which then only become available to and sanctioned by people who are part of that scientific system. And whilst I understand that, you know, if you're going to be a surgeon, I have lots of surgeons in my family, you want someone who's been through a medical training Mm -hmm. and seven years plus whatever Mm -hmm. it is, extra years of um, training on top of that. I do worry that some of the people who are best positioned to guide people through these experiences, who have been forced underground, who don't necessarily have years of traditional psychotherapeutic knowledge under their belts, I'm worried that these people will then get sidelined out. And it's something that Michael Pollan raises in his book, and I think is a really interesting perspective. What are your thoughts on this, given that you're in a really interesting position from within the research side of things, but also seeing how non-scientifically trained guides can actually facilitate better experiences. I don't know. I don't know if I'm being clear there. That's a lot of thought all out in one in one go. Hmm. No, I, I think I, I completely get your question. And I think it's super relevant for, for different reasons. I, I think one has to do with safety and the other one has to do with making the most out of this experience. Mm-hmm. And... and, and there's an interesting separation in, in this idea of a know-how and uh, what you may call a know-that. So the idea of knowing uh, through action and practice and, and, for example, guiding and so on, uh, versus the theoretical abstract notions that you go on learning school and so on. I, like I said before, I think there's a lot of knowledge out there on how to conduct ceremonies in the optimal way. Um, there's a vast amount, incredible amount of uh, interesting knowledges and practices carried out by different indigenous communities uh, for different healing purposes. Mm-hmm. I think that if the scientific community or the medical community or whoever is kind of like involved in this process, which are many different actors in the mainstreaming of psychedelics. Um, If they do not take into account that knowledge, that's a huge waste. Mm. Um, Now, the interesting aspect also on indigenous knowledge is that there is no, even if you go to one place, there's no one single indigenous knowledge. Mm. Uh, There's a plethora of things all the time and it's... and many times it's not like structured so i think there are of course there's of course a political dimension to this whole thing in the way that you know who gets to say the way things are done right Mm. Uh, but there's also an element of practicality of how do you gather this knowledge how do you make the best practices out there and i think that that's quite interesting because if you look at the main um, practices involved in psychedelic therapy and in guiding psychedelic sessions within mainstream scientific and therapeutic contexts, many of the postulates derive from indigenous practice. So let's say, for example, the idea of having music in a session uh, for guiding people and Mm -hmm. let music be the guide. Um, This is a thing that's been carried out for many, many years in ceremonial context mm. in indigenous populations. I mean, it's, it's, it's been the case all the time. The idea of ritual, we don't call it a ritual, but what happens in the guiding sessions, the idea of a structure, the idea of what you might call a protocol, but a protocol with meaning, a protocol with 
um, in which the stakes are high, if you will. Mm. It's all very much resonant with the idea of ritual. So I think that, that it's interesting because in the therapeutic world, especially in the therapy, um, I think that within in therapy in general, not just psychedelic therapy, mm. uh, the idea of the know-how is, is the basic element deriving success in therapeutic outcomes. Um, much more than your abstract theoretical knowledge. Mm. And I think that that intuition is out there. And it's interesting because it is incorporated in the scientific trials. So the know-how has somehow percolated. Mm. Now, what will be interesting down the line is the way in which the therapy gets instantiated at a larger scale, in which, you know, it has to be, you know, uh, put into the the national healthcare systems <laughs> wow. in which you know expenses need to be like brought down and that's a huge challenge that's that is not an easy thing because in a way uh, and and this is a super interesting point of tension is that psychedelic therapy almost forces us to restructure the therapeutic elements <laughs> so that the idea of preparation is there so that the idea of ritual is there to some extent and so for the idea of like integration mm -hmm. um, uh, for it to be there. So I think it, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, 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 it's a challenge for many different reasons. Absolutely. I'm curious, what are some of the most surprising insights you've discovered personally from the work that you've done? <laughs> <laughs> um, interesting I have the, to have a very broad perspective. <laughs> I, I would say that for me, like one of the things that has been super interesting to kind of like understand and delve into uh, is the notion of the diversity of experience, the richness of experience, the commonalities of experience, uh, the idea that people might be going to a specific space uh, and it all comes from this notion of, in a big way, of perennialism versus, you know, constructivist ideas of spirituality. So the perennial notion basically says that all these different altered states or religious experiences or spiritual experiences are all kind of like part of the same animal. Mm -hmm. um, whereas your opposing view would say, no, 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 this is just, you know, like very relative. Uh, it's all construction based on social and cultural norms and so on. So trying to get into this space and really understand these experiences because I bit the approach that I've been taking with the research is not just looking at the brain, but just really understanding experience from a very methodical uh, point of view. And when we started to go into that direction, um, it was interesting to see and try to tease apart what might be common things between different experiences, uh, what might be different things, what can be, uh, what are some of the memes out there surrounding these experiences and how do they percolate into the experiences. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, and in that, in, I think in that trajectory along the line, uh, there was a huge appreciation for the fact, at least from my end, that experience is really being um, overlooked within 
the realm of neuroscience and in the realm of cognitive sciences and it's even overlooked in the realm of psychiatry in the way that we diagnose people uh we put them in little categories and boxes so that they you know have a practical implementation but in reality the idea of experience is so much more diverse than we can understand mm -hmm. and there's a huge importance into that i feel like it's almost a necessary part of human beings to understand their experiential <laughs> repertoires. <laughs> I and think that's all we have is experience. <laughs> we forget that we are subjective, interrelating yeah. beings. It just seems extraordinary to me that we've gone so far in a certain direction that subjective experience would be missed out. It's like, I don't know, it's like looking at a human and just looking at the head. <laughs> it's kind of like, that's yeah, that's the human. You exactly. think, but there's a whole other system that you're just ignoring. <laughs> I don't know. Exactly. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's the same old story. The map is not the territory. And yeah. I think it's like, it's, it's, it's the primacy of everything that we have. You know, it's this, this first register that we have to know anything, you know, is experience. Yeah. So I think that this, this idea of taking experience seriously is something that we should be serious, very serious about. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so so that that has been like super, super nice and super interesting to delve into, um, at least in terms of what I've kind of like found in the research, figured out. And it's not that I figured it out, but I think that there is, it's very interesting how different little roads and ideas and inspirations open up uh, when you start looking into these experiences a bit more carefully. So I want to circle back a bit to the study that you conducted looking at DMT on brain function. Um, and I was curious to ask what you found to be uh, similar in terms of the results of its effects on the brain as compared to, for instance, psilocybin and LSD. Because there's a lot of interesting research that's been done also in the U US, I think, around the psilocybin and LSD use in end-of-life patients um, and other various things. Um, yeah, what did you find and what are your thoughts on what you found? So, um, so yeah, we've conducted a, a, a couple of experiments using DMT. Mm -hmm. So DMT is the substance that I, yeah, that, that, I, that I focused the most. And DMT, you know, a bit unlike psilocybin and LSD at your regular dose, DMT has a, a peculiar effect, which induces kind of like this idea of breaking through into alternate realms or realities mm. or th that's the feeling that people have right the full immersion that's kind of like the notion into something that feels separate uh, another mm -hmm. world of sorts um so i think so we were really interested in that and and trying to really figure out what might be some of the mechanisms behind that or that are associated to that if you don't want to have a super reductionist view that the brain is necessarily generating this whole thing but it's also mm -hmm. just something that is you know a part of it in a way um and i think one of the well one of the earliest findings is that we saw that there were a lot of commonalities with near-death experiences um mm -hmm. and we wanted to you know really research that uh, again the idea of commonalities of experiences so one of the first things that we did is that we we compared the experiences from our participants and, and people who had actual near-death experiences. Oh. And we found out that basically their, their experiences were mostly comparable. Uh, so this is an idea that has been going around for a while, the idea that DMT can induce 
uh, near-death experiences mm. or something of the sort, or that it might be associated to the process of death. So that was one of the initial findings, at least in terms of experience. And this, I, you know, it links back uh, with what you were mentioning, uh, this connection between psychedelics and death and dying, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, the idea that it can generate experiences which bring people to a place more intimate in relationship to the idea of death. Uh, which can have interesting therapeutic applications. So that was one of the first things that we looked into. Then we looked into the way a brain function would be altered by by the administration of DMT. Mm-hmm. So, so to do that, we measured brain waves and brain patterns that are measured through what you call the electroencephalogram, which is this uh, kind of like device that picks up, you know, electrical activity coming out of the brain. So we had our participants and, and we gave them some doses of, of DMT and we, we characterized the brain function. And one of the differences compared to LSD and, and psilocybin that we found is that with LSD and psilocybin, one of the things that the team has been seeing over and over again is that the brain becomes more disordered. Mm. Um, instead of functioning in its usual patterns, uh, instead of taking the usual roads and communicating in the usual ways, uh, it start novel patterns start to emerge. Uh, there's more disorder in terms of brain activity. There is more information, if you will, during the same amount of time. Like LSD and psilocybin, we found that the brain, when you looked at it in a specific way, the level of entropy or disorder was incredibly enhanced. <laughs> so it was like the effects of LSD and psilocybin, but it was you know, much, much stronger. Your brain function became more unpredictable. But at the same time, within that disorder, we saw a signature of emergent order, if you will. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, How did that show up? So that showed up in in the form of theta waves. Um, So theta waves patterns are usually what you see when people are when they're sleeping and more specifically mm-hmm. when they're dreaming, huh. when they're having vivid dreams. So this shows up in, in REM, uh, in REM sleep cycles. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very interesting because when you look at the phenomenology or, or the basic idea of what's happening in a, in a DMT session, is that people have their eyes closed and they're partially disconnected from the environment. Uh, and when they dream, uh, the same sort of idea is happening. People are partially disconnected from the environment, but within, there's a whole world of experience taking place. There's mm-hmm. a full sense of immersion in which people are not only having visual experiences, but they're having emotional experiences. They're very involved. It's a space full of meaning many times. So we saw a very interesting aspect in that. We saw that well, and this, you know, emergent order, this theta wave pattern happened at the peak of the experience. So when people were having the strongest, um, the strongest moment of the experience, uh, which is usually when people describe that this breakthrough, the empty breakthrough experience is taking place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, that was one of the yeah, one of the main findings I would say in regards to the with regards to the DMT study. That's absolutely fascinating. I don't know what one interprets off the back of that then, because I think 
Well, actually, how would you interpret that? If we're talking about subjectivity and the experience, <laughs> sort of the qualitative side of things as a scientist, yeah. um, how would you begin to interpret that? Would you give yourself permission to interpret that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's, I think, as a neuroscientist, you try to explain things in terms of brain activity and brain function. Mm. Um, but there's a side of you which, you know, like I said, or at least for me, uh, the, the primacy of experience uh, cannot be reduced completely to brain activity. Mm -hmm. So from, you know, with the first cap on, with the neuroscientist cap on, I would say, well, you know, it's interesting because that theta wave pattern, you also see it in terms of dreaming and sleep. And, you know, this may account mm -hmm. for experiences of immersion uh, at large, mm. right? Uh, we're not entirely sure that it's exactly the same pattern that's originating in the same part of the brain. That that's important to also mention. Mm -hmm. um, but we do see that same pattern, and you see that same pattern also in other altered states of consciousness. You see it in temporal lobe epilepsy. You see it, um, uh, I think, in some states of psychosis as well. Oh. So it's it's interesting because it all relates to this notion in which your experience is no longer being determined by the external, but by the internal, mm -hmm. right? Um, you're a bit more shut off from the environment. You're, you're in a state of partial disconnection in which your fully immersive, rich experience is now is determined by, you know, what's happening inside of you uh, and everything that we store, um, you know, our experiences, memories, traumas and so on. Now, from you know the the idea of understanding experience and the primacy mm -hmm. of experience, there's a lot of phenomena that we haven't really accounted for, uh, which are appear to be stable in terms of these experiences, which are very fascinating. Um, a lot of people report in these DMT experiences that they meet uh, entities, beings, um, mm. that that the and that these encounters with these beings are not to do not feel trivial uh, in the sense of just watching a screen, you know, with a being, but that being has an actual intention, has a sort of personality and so on. Um, or that the place that people are going when they have these experiences is a place full of significance and importance, mm -hmm. something like uh, an idea of a source or something like this. Mm -hmm. um, this is interesting, uh, and also <laughs> the uh, it's interesting because it's not just in the current use of DMT, but you see it in the use of ayahuasca, yeah, which contains DMT and is very also prevalent in other, um, you know, other psychedelics. Um, so it's it's very intriguing that you can have this stable experience that this thing recurs over and over again. Mm -hmm. Another interesting aspect is uh, the experience that people feel in their body a strong sense of vibration. Yeah. Many of my participants almost always started with this experience of vibration in their bodies. And then this full sense of immersion. Uh, but before that, the body. That's interesting because although you can say that your experience can be mediated by cultural memes and semantics and ideas, you know, what's happening in the body is much more primal than that. People feel this sense of vibration at the beginning, the strong sense of rush, mm -hmm. um, a, a sense of overwhelmingness, 
in that. And after that, there's a sense of disembodiment. So it's like what precedes the idea of disconnection from the external environment is this sense of, of rushing the body. It's almost like a transitional state. And that's super interesting because if when you look at other altered states, this idea of the body entering some sort of vibration is, is relatively common. It's, a, it's an interesting notion and it's particularly interesting because it doesn't have an obvious verbal mediation and a cultural mediation, something that you've read about. Mm -hmm. right? Um, so that's another fascinating thing and, 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 and we don't quite understand it but we could try to understand these things it's very interesting and is there any research um, that's been conducted exploring what gives rise to the physical reaction because having a sense of physical vibration through one's body that's quite an, uh, a potent mm. experience for instance if you're in a meeting and suddenly your whole body started like <laughs> feeling like it was vibrating you'd probably take a moment and take yourself to the bathroom just to check in that you're okay. And so like, yeah, do we know what it is that gives rise to that in these experiences? Uh, we know that some like endocrine levels of some measures go up with that experience. Um, not necessarily with the body experience, but things that, are, that could be associated to that uh, in, in some sort of way. So the increase of certain hormones. Mm -hmm. So this has been studied and there's data on this. Um, but the interesting component out of that as well is that it also carries emotion many times and uh, mm. and and you know people feel that this experience in the body is somehow significant mm. um, so it's almost like the way that I sometimes think about this and uh, and when I get a bit speculative is that I feel that it might be an interesting therapeutic side of these, of these experiences. Hmm. Uh, the idea of reconnecting to a body, to a primal state, uh, to a, a primal aspect of experience where also, according to some theories, we store traumas or we store, you know, um, our history hmm. before it reaches into some sort of register of symbols and language and so on. Hmm. Uh, so the idea of accessing a bit that that sort of pre-verbal state might open some interesting um, uh, therapeutic possibilities, if you will, and or if you want to be um, a bit more far out on your ideas, <laughs> uh, it connects you with something more primal about being a human being. You know, like connects you back to your body. We live in societies in which you know we're we're very much in the head. Yeah. So um, I think that's very interesting. There, there's a lot of interesting aspects to explore in there and um, one of the things that I've been particularly fascinated about uh, is this notion this possibility that this connection to the body is mediated uh, by the same mechanisms that we connect with nature uh, or that people connect mm -hmm. with nature when they have psychedelic experiences it's all about connecting with life uh, or something of the sort Oh, that's speculative. Uh, <laughs> I could be wrong, but I think it's a fascinating possibility. So your friend um, whom I spoke with, Sam Gandhi, uh, raised this really interesting thread around psychedelics and the emergence of feelings of nature connectedness. Mm. Um, is this something that you've also witnessed in DMT experiences in the trials that you've been running? Uh, some of the participants uh, do mention that. Like I said, it's not... 
we're not doing it in, in, in an environment in which it's, there's a lot of nature around. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people do, do mention experiences of nature, even when if they have their eyes closed with DMT. That's fascinating. So the idea of encountering animals or, or the idea of encountering, uh, you know, uh, green areas of, of, of any kind of, that you can think of, mm. or even the idea of the experience of water being immersed in, in some sort of lake. It's, it's fairly common. Um, I just personally find fascinating. I, I think that from, um, kind of like from a science and a philosophical point of view, why do people connect with nature more with psychedelic experiences? It's not obvious. It's not clear and it's not resolved. And I'm, I'm personally fascinated by it. I think it's incredible. And like one of the things that I would love to do is understand those mechanisms. Uh, try to see if there is some sort of resonant mechanism that's undergoing uh, when these experiences are happening. It's a resonant element with nature, you know. Um, mm. And it has huge potential implications. Uh, What's the biggest implication that you that you take from that that you're excited about? <laughs> um, I think that this this idea again, you know, it, it's very simple. Just um, understanding, taking the time to spend more time with nature, get in touch with those inner rhythms a bit more, maybe. Mm. Uh, the idea that human beings can, again, start to maybe, I don't know if again, maybe it's just a different way of doing it. Uh, maybe it's not about reconnecting with nature, but just connect with it, nature in a different way. Mm. Um, I think it opens up a possibility of transformation on how we relate with nature mm. uh, altogether. Um, it's not necessarily the only thing, of course, but it might help in that direction. Yeah. And I think that that's, um, you know, that's very important in these times. It's like it's particularly relevant. It, it is a moment in which, w in which nature is redefining our relationship with it because it's, in a way, it's reacting, um, and that puts us in a specific existential challenge and ex existential situation. And if we have something that could help in that direction or that could, um, I don't know how to say it, but uh, maybe lubricate the possibility of change, then that's a very interesting possibility. Mm. One of the things that I've noticed that haven't been mentioned, well, clearly in trials, it's a bit different because the setting is is that of a controlled environment. But um, one of the things that I've not heard mentioned by many people, um, especially Western people going to ritual spaces in, for instance, the Peruvian Amazon Basin, you know, we now know about all sorts of tourism opportunities for that, which kind of turns my stomach a bit. But, you know, it's now something that people know a lot more about. Um one of the things that you hear a lot about is people laying down and entering this kind of, you talk about this somewhat connected, somewhat disconnected state. So like half in, half out. I don't know exactly what the percentages would be. But um, one thing that you don't hear about is when people get up and interact directly with nature while experiencing a full-blown mm. ayahuasca experience. And it's not something that I've come across uh, in the literature. I don't know if you've come across that have any thoughts about that this is more of a personal investigatory question as opposed <laughs> to anything else but <laughs> <laughs> that's fair enough um i know that there's some uh you know there's uh religious use of ayahuasca in some parts of the world mm 
and um, so I know that some of these groups, like the Santo Daime group, they do sometimes ceremonies mm. in, the, in nature, is what I've heard. Um, usually the, well, yeah, like the retreats, I mean, the retreats are very varied in, in reality. And mm. um, you hear many different things and possibilities and settings and so on. Uh, a structured retreat in which you are purposely, you know, exposed to nature. I think it's more of a rare thing to hear about. Uh, but, you know, I don't know. Some people have talked to me about things like that at some point, I think. Mm. Yeah. But I wouldn't be surprised if that becomes much more and more common. Yeah. Especially as, you know, you hear the loss of species and and animals and so on. There's a, there's a feeling of, you know, I could imagine a future in which an element of nostalgia would would make people, you know, propel more into immersive experiences with nature. You're seeing it with VR now, actually. There's oh, some interesting. It sounds like something like Punch Drunk, like immersive theatre, oh. which I love, by the way. I love immersive theatre. But something like that where the real thing, or like in the future on Star Trek where you have holodecks, which I also love the idea of, but not to replace something which is lost. I think that's the thing that's the most disturbing to me is the idea that we could lose all of this um, and would then be left with a virtual poor reproduction of something that was once so much more rich um yeah yeah i I think it's already happening though i mean i i don't know i i see these headlines all the time like you know 80 percent of wildlife is now destroyed it's like yeah yeah uh like these kind of like titles you you know they pop up i think it's it's the loss is undergoing has been undergoing for a while Mm. um I think we're already in some sort of realm of nostalgia to a certain extent. I mean, mm. just imagine the fact that we live in cities in which we're not necessarily surrounded by green spaces. I think we've been in that path for a while now. And um, but the thing is that we do have the opportunity not to reach a critical point in which in which things change for, you know, in, in a very drastic way. And I agree with you. I mean, uh, I... I think that the idea of living in space just with recreated green spaces in little hologram ports is uh, quite sad, actually. Uh, so, yeah. It makes my whole body want to just shrivel up. Um, it's like when people say, oh, you know, but wouldn't it be amazing to go on a spaceship? I'm thinking, it'd be fucking claustrophobic and awful. I just want to be here, my feet on the earth and trees nearby and the sound of birds and a bit of running water. Be happy as you like. And yet, you know... I live in a city, um, as many of us do. So that, maybe it is that sense of rekindling our love of and desire for nature. It's kind of like, I was talking about this with someone today, This the sense of eros, not as a necessarily sexual force, but as a force of vitality. And often that arises when we're mm. longing for it, when we're in separation from it or from the object of our uh, desire, yeah. whether that's, you know, dancing or being with a lover or eating amazing food, whatever it is. But there's that space that's required in order to generate the desire to reconnect. Um, and I wonder if that's, first of all, that, if that's what's needed. And secondly, that's what's happening and showing up in various different ways, including through eco-anxiety, which is now something that you're hearing more about in the sense of um, 
depression and isolation that's associated with less oh, connection wow. with not only ourselves and each other but with our living world oh, i hadn't i hadn't heard of it <laughs> um, yeah um so i don't want to take too much more of your time but i do want to ask you before we wrap up um what insight or uh little kernel of wisdom would you give to people who are listening a kernel of wisdom <laughs> maybe that's too laden with uh, yeah, pressure. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I'm gonna. I think. Yeah, yeah. I'll get there. I'll get there. Just, just uh, give it a little thought. You can take uh, your time. I think. Um, I think. Uh, I think that the notion of, um, you know, one of the. Um, one of the things, you know, like I'm also a musician and um, I do I do science and I do music and like one of the things that I I guess that I always try to balance out in my life is not to be too much hmm. just on the science and, and forgetting about the other aspect of mm-hmm. myself. And I would say that there is a lot of uh, there is a big importance of um, and this yeah, is going to sound a bit cliche, I guess, <laughs> but the importance of finding beauty and aesthetics, aesthetics in the thing that's, in the things that you know we do as individuals and and in in the things that we do collectively. Mm. And I think that this uh, the notion of kind of like living in poetry is kind of like a very beautiful thing. And I think that it's uh, you know the challenges that we may the, when we may face you know as a species or uh the way that we can go forward as a yeah again as a as, a, as humankind or, or or whatever it is you know that will end up being uh maybe merged with technology who knows you mm. know i think it's it's important to 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 carry you know uh to carry beauty in that you know to carry this idea of a song or to carry the idea of meaning uh uh and because i think there's a lot of energy and power you know, in that. And, you know, I think this may be linking a bit with what you were saying before with uh, the notion of errors being this kind of like life force or, or something like uh, a pool, you know, guiding life or, you know, pushing people into into these challenges and overcoming them and, and finding strength. So, yeah, that would be, I guess, the little bit of wisdom that I can contribute. That's beautiful. Um, on that note, it reminds me of um, this beautiful snippet of, uh, I think it feels like poetry, um, beautiful snippet of poetry from one of my favourite authors, Anais Na. Um, and it seems strikingly relevant at this precise moment in time, but it goes, and the time came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. And I think that's what we need right now. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can visit the show notes page at natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and you can join in the conversation with the hashtag Hive Podcast. Thanks again for listening and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode. Mm-hmm.